0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org.
1: The first reading is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord... There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. The second
2: reading is from the, uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pa- pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord.
0: Our gospel portion for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord.
3: If you are, I think most of you are older than 16, So most of you can handle the next 66-minute sermon. However, if there are some children, we do have a children's class. And if you would like to escape, then now's your opportunity. Now, I know David also told you to turn these off, but this is actually for your protection. Not mine. Let's pray for our little ones. Who's got kids? Let's pray for them all. Father in heaven, uh, we acknowledge that you love our children even more than we do. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will bless them with your presence. You will bless Amy and her teachers. And you will guard our children with your angels. Keep the enemy far away from them. Plant the seed of faith inside them and raise them up to be mighty men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen. We are... Uh, as an Anglican church, we follow a lectionary, and, uh, which is something that we actually inherit from the synagogue. It's a three-year cycle of reading Bible, for those who are not familiar. And so our portion uh, today sits in Luke uh, 15, with several parables. We will continue in Luke until we get to Advent, and then the calendar will switch, and we'll begin to read and preach through the Gospel of Matthew. But at the moment, we have a collection of parables that have been grouped together by Luke in response to the mutterings of some Pharisees. Yes? Yes. And Jesus is going to teach through these, through these parables. And one of them that we have, the parable of the lost coin, is actually going to be unique to Luke. it's so going to be a parable that's very special, just to his gospel, the parable of the lost coin. So how does Luke managed to come up with this piece of material and not Matthew or, or Mark or John, for that matter. Well, for Western tradition, we have this idea that Luke's a Gentile. So we've kind of got this idea that he's the only Gentile that uh, gets to write parts of the New Testament and we really want to think that way so at least one of us goy boys gets, gets to write a book. However, as Protestants, we have a tendency only to dialogue with Catholics. Usually, you're wrong uh, and we're right. And they say, no, 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 you're wrong and we're right. And we forget that there's 400 million other Christians out there. The Orthodox. They've been here since the beginning. And they're preserving some really interesting traditions. And they have a tradition that Luke's actually Jewish. and That he comes from Antioch. He's a Hellenistic a Jewish guy who moves to Jerusalem and actually becomes a disciple of Jesus. They list him down as one of the 70 disciples. And so he has direct material, direct access to Mary. Right? He has all the stories of Mary being uh, with the angel. Nobody else has. He has the, the young stories of Jesus. And he has uh, some other unique material. So the, the Orthodox have this tradition that he's heard this firsthand think they might be right. Okay? And so he's heard this story, he's put it together with the other parable of uh, the lost sheep in response to the accusation by our pharisaical friends. I wanted to share a little bit about the nature of parables, seeing as how that's the material I get to work with. The blessing of a, of a lectionary is that um, you do have to end up preaching the whole, whole gospel, even the bits you don't like. So there are sometimes you get some good juicy material like parables, and sometimes you get the beheading of John the Baptist. Okay? But today we get some parables. And uh, last year I was privileged to go to a seminary, uh, seminary, seminar, close enough, uh, from Dr. Steve Notley, who gave a lecture on Jewish parables. It was fascinating, and uh, so I'll use a bit of his material uh, this morning. He he, he noted in his lecture that parables um, come from emerging Judaism of the late Second Temple period, our time, the time of the New Testament. Parables only occur in the Gospels and in rabbinic literature. There are no other parables. There are no parables in Diaspora Judaism. There's no parables in Babylon. There's no parables in Paul. There's no parables in John. And there's no parables uh, in the Apostolic Fathers. And uh, they, they grouped. They went and, and, and researched all of the parables. And there's over 430 of them. They put them all in a book. And they, woe and behold, they discovered that they're all in Hebrew. So normally, the rabbinic writings in Aramaic. So you have an Aramaic block of text. But then when you get to a parable, you switch to Hebrew. There are no parables in Greek. There are no parables in Aramaic. They're all in Hebrew. So have a guess what language Yeshua, Jesus, is speaking. Most likely in Hebrew, right? So he probably did his dialogue in other, perhaps, Aramaic. When you teach a parable, you teach it in Hebrew. Parables are first encountered in the New Testament in terms of their history. That doesn't mean they're invented by the New Testament, but they're part of that milieu. and it's the first books that are writing them down. They're universal. Even though this is a Jewish parable, it doesn't mention ethnicity. The parables say things like, a king went out, a man went out, a woman looked for a coin doesn't say a Jewish woman. doesn't say a Gentile woman. They're universal. A man plowed a field. Which field? What field? What was the name of the country? It doesn't say. They're they're quite universal in nature, which is an interesting feature of Jewish parables. There's no distinctive aspect of uh, of Jewish life, and they don't quote the Bible. Whenever you have a parable, there's no direct quote of a Bible. Thus it says in such and such a, a, a prophet. They're not the product of Torah study. You never find them being used in the synagogue or as part of sermons today. You will, but in Jesus' life, no. They were out in the in the in the in public areas. They were at meal occasions. They were at um, um, uh, big events out in in the marketplace. They're part of public life and public conversation and public discourse. They weren't reserved for uh, the 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 synagogue. It's a unique teaching tool to the rabbinic movement that we find emerging in Israel, of which Jesus is a part of, and he is the master storyteller. When you compare gospel parables, it's going to sound a little biased, because it is, Uh, the, the gospel parables just look smarter. They look cleverer. They, the, their word plays are, seems to be just a little bit, little bit better and what is our parables telling us today they're telling us a very simple plain truth and that's what the parables are designed to do take something complicated make something simple heaven rejoices when sinners repent isn't that simple Isn't that beautiful? That is a very nice thought. Heaven rejoices when sinners repent. So let's have a look at the context of our passage. So in context, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. and He's not alone. For those that uh, listened to the podcast last week or heard sermons last week on Luke 14, David reminded us, that there were multitudes following him, large crowds journeying with Jesus towards uh, Jerusalem. And uh, you, can, you can look at our podcast to hear what, what, he, what David mentioned. He asked the question, why are they following Jesus? Why are there so many people attracted to the message of the Messiah? Are they, are they filled with messianic expectation? Are we going to Jerusalem to smash some Romans and uh, liberate the Holy Land? Uh, were they there because they loved the miracles? I mean, you've got to hang out with this guy because he's going to do something wonderful. I mean, I can't wait to meet a demon. You watch what Jesus does when he meets a demon. Perhaps they're there as, uh, for the free lunches. Okay? You, don't have to, you don't have to bring anything with this guy Okay, when it's lunchtime. Out it comes. All right, it's absolutely fantastic, and not only that, not only that, the medical benefits are fantastic. Okay, you're sick. Left, right, and center, we're all healed. Okay, yep, I'll hang out with that guy. And David uh, noticed that Yeshua, Jesus, he challenges the people who who are following him. He challenges them very strongly. He says, "Who do you prefer?" Do you prefer your families or do you prefer me? Which Messiah are you wanting to follow? And uh, he uses the words hate, but not hate in the way of hating, but in, in, in the way of preferring. So uh, I urge you to have a look at that uh, sermon last week. It's a strong challenge. Strong challenge on the nature of discipleship. And what happens? Does this strong message drive people away? What do we see today? No, it doesn't. Some people are actually attracted. And in our case, we read, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near him to hear him. So the message, a powerful message, a strong message. The truth does not... Drive people away. How many of our churches have watered down the gospel thinking it's going to attract people? It's not true. It is not true. So, brothers and sisters, if there are any pastors out there, if there's some shepherds here, and you keep your messages on point, you keep them strong, you keep them challenging. You keep them truth and you declare the gospel that sets people free. And it will attract people, particularly the sinners. Now the Pharisees are there too. They're not run off by this guy. And uh, you might notice that when you get to Acts 15, the Pharisees are still there. Okay? It's the party of the Pharisees and the apostles uh, having a little dialogue with um, Peter, Paul. I was about to say Peter, Paul and Mary, but that's not true. Peter, Paul and Barnabas. Um, we'll edit that one out. Uh, and it's the, the Pharisees are still Pharisees, oddly enough. Okay? And uh, so they are attracted to the, to, the, to the Jesus movement, to the Messianic character. Of course they are. They've been studying Torah too. Uh, and here they're grumbling. And uh, they have uh, an accusation to make to this pretentious Messiah. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this is true. This is exactly what Yeshua is doing. It's exactly what we should all be doing. And we can see that all cultures, including the one of the Second Temple period and our own, we love to engage in distinctiveness and separation. And in the, in the, in the Second Temple period, you had a clean versus unclean. Idea. You had things that you couldn't touch or people that you couldn't visit for fear of becoming contaminated. And our dear tax collectors, I mean, these are not just sinners. These are the worst type of scum. These guys are working with the occupation. These guys are assisting the Romans in taking our hard-earned money uh, and giving it to them. They're, they're traitors. I mean, you don't hang out with these people. In our our modern context, we have not just distinctiveness between who's religious and who's not religious, who goes to church and who doesn't go to church, uh, who's a climate skeptic, uh, who's a denier or who's an alarmist, but we also have racial groupings, yes? Here in Israel, we talk about anybody from Russia as the Russians, even though they're Jews, and I know lots of Jewish believers who say, Aaron, I came, when I was in Russia, they kept calling me a dirty Jew, and now I'm here in Israel, they call me a dirty Russian. Help! <laughs> and, and we do it, you know, Catholic, Protestant, Anabaptist, uh, whatever, you know, which Bible should we be reading? Is it the King James only inspired? Why are you wearing a collar, Aaron? What's that got to do with it? If you ever figure out what I'm supposed to wear, let me know. Okay? <laughs> what am I supposed to wear? Okay? We, we do it. We separate people into groups too we shouldn't we do we acknowledge our own faults yes here where we can see a nature of separation look messiah messiah character jesus what are you doing with these people he's eating with these scum does he not have eyes he's becoming contaminated by their by their filth In the second temple period, you actually had these extreme views. You had on one hand, you had uh, uh, rabbinical movements who would not teach Torah to Gentiles. Don't bother with them. But on the other hand, you had groups that would welcome Gentiles into the synagogue. In fact, that's what you find in the New Testament, don't you? Yes? Every time Paul's walking into a synagogue, who's there? Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it's very interesting that in the Bible the only person actually called righteous is guess who? Noah. He's a Gentile. Only person in the Bible called righteous is a Gentile. When Abraham comes and meets Melchizedek, who's Melchizedek worshipping? God. Isn't that interesting? Gentiles are also worshipping God. Just the way it's meant. Be. We're meant to be doing this together. And in the second temple period, food is a big issue. Food, uh, the actual idea of sitting down and having a meal occasion with somebody uh, is, is big. In fact, in the book of Acts, which we've been studying recently, when Peter had that vision to go to uh, Cornelius, it involved food, though he personally didn't get up and eat anything. But it is interesting the vision was, was about clean and unclean foods. Then he goes into a Gentile house, a centurion, and he watches the Holy Spirit fall on them, and then he eats. And then when he goes to Jerusalem to answer for this abomination, what are they asking? They say, did you really go into a Gentile home and eat with them? They don't say, did the Holy Spirit actually fall on these guys? They don't say, did you actually have a vision from heaven? Tell me about that. Their sole question was, did you actually eat with them? Did you actually set foot in their house? What's going on, Peter? There's no way you would do such a thing. Tell me it's not true. Meal occasions are a big deal. Meal occasions are when two people who are having a disagreement can get reconciled. What does King David say? You have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I sit down with those that I don't like. I eat and I drink and we talk. People who eat, unless you take vows of silence, usually start talking, yes? And for those of us who are Anglicans, in vino veritas, yes? So have a glass of wine and blablabla, all kinds of stuff come out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for better or for worse. That's going to get edited out too. This is a meal occasion. Is it not? Yes, and uh, one of the things I really like about uh, the temple service is when you brought your sacrifice into the temple, who ate it? Yes, of course, God got a bit. The priest got a bit. Who else got a bit? We did. And what did we have to do with it? Could we take it home? No, you had to eat it all then and there, didn't you? Anyone try and eat half a goat? It's pretty hard. Now, if you did have half a goat that's been barbecued and you're smelling this and you're worshipping the Lord, isn't it interesting you use your taste buds to worship the Lord? <laughs> that's great. In fact, in Jewish tradition, you use... Yeah, that's uh, for those in the past cod land, I got really excited. Started waving my hands around. Uh, I'll try and contain myself. But it's so good when you, when you worship the Lord with all of your senses... You worship the Lord with your sense of smell. that's why God has incense. You worship the Lord with your, with your sight, the colors and the, and the, and the, the, the pictures and the, and the things you see in the tabernacle. And, and you worship God with your touch and your taste, not just your ears and your mouth. You do that too. You worship Him with your whole body. Unfortunately, in the Protestant tradition, we've kicked most of that out, which is a bit of a shame. Okay. But uh, you ate your sacrifice. We're going to eat and drink together. Reconciling ourselves one to another in the presence of God. And that is a very beautiful thought. So food was a big deal. And the Pharisees made the right accusation. What are you doing with these people? So the accusation is true. Great opportunity for the Messiah to teach a very deep truth. And so he says, one more point. When you get to Acts 15, and we're going to have a few laws for Gentiles, there are only four, but three of them are about food. That's how important it was. And when you get to Paul, he's going to spend three chapters in Corinthians trying to figure out, can you or can you not eat food offered to idols? It was a big deal. So in this context of it being a big deal, uh, we, we notice that Yeshua cuts through the judgmentalism And uh, he says, I'm going to reveal something about the heart of God. I'm going to show you how God feels about these people. And we get these parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the coin, lovely grouped together by, by our gospel writer. Some of them we've heard before. Both very common motives in the land. Shepherds in the first temple period were the kings. All of the early heroes of God are all shepherds, yes? And then when you get into the second temple period, urbanization has happened. People have moved in from the land and they're now living in rich villas inside town. So all the rich people don't live on the farms anymore. They're now in town. So who's who's working the, the fields? The poor people, the shepherds. Okay, the Second Temple Period tradition was if there's anybody you don't want your son to, to marry, it's the daughter of a shepherd. Okay? Today, that's a lawyer. Okay? But, uh, <laughs> but in the Second Temple Period, it was shepherds. But there's, there's, there was still the idea of shepherd kings and, 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 and uh, the, the, the goodness of a shepherd. A, a normal shepherd who was just a hired hand, he didn't really care. But the real owner, the one who actually actually owned the flock the guys like Jacob the guys like Abraham the guys like David the real shepherds then uh, they, they cared and it's not that the, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in danger to go after the one the 99 sheep are in they're okay they're not wandering off anywhere they're doing fine they're eating they're grazing they're doing fine but our little hero is going to go and seek and search and loss and you end up with the idea of the good shepherd which is exactly what you find in second temple period Jewish thought of Moses anyone seen the movie the prince of Egypt right. in, uh, is it, they, they, asked, they asked a few rabbis about uh, this and they put, it, put a Talmudic uh, a Midrashic idea that when Moses was looking after the flock in Midian uh, one sheep goes missing And they're asking the question, why is Moses allowed to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Out of all the heroes, what's Moses actually like? He's a murderer. Yes? Then, when he hides the body and gets found out, what does he do? He runs. He doesn't bravely stand up and go, yeah, yeah, I did that. What are you going to do about it? He's like, oh my gosh, they got me I'm off. <laughs> yep. And then he goes and lives in the desert for 40 years, marries somebody, and gets wealthy. 40 years he's there. So when is God's hero ready to lead the children out of, out of Egypt? And they have this parable that... Uh, One sheep goes missing. Moses goes looking for it. He scuffs his elbows, scuffs his knees, and finally he sees the the sheep. I mean, that sheep and that lost coin are not going to find themselves. So you have to go after them, or they're gone. You have to search for them. And you can see in our text that they will search diligently and earnestly for them. And when Moses finally finds He has lost sheep and he bends down to pick him up. Then the bush catches fire and God says, yes, my hero is ready because he has compassion for the lost ones. So brothers and sisters, if you want to be a hero of God, you need to have compassion. You need to have compassion for the lost ones. It's one of my favorite words in Hebrew, chemla, in, uh, in Hebrew, compassion. Many times when Jesus, who is tired, he's, been, he's, he's exhausted, he's crossed other sides of the Galilee trying to get away, the crowds come and find him, and the text deliberately says he looked upon them as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion on them. They know, they know this, this story. So this is the heart of God. He has compassion on the lost one. He has compassion on the ones that we think are different from us and have, are not the same as us and are not as good as us and read a different Bible to us and wear a funny clothing or, even, or pray differently or have a different uh, way of doing, of doing church or not even going. And, uh, and God wants to seek and he'll do anything to find them. In Luke's unique Parable. He starts with a man, and uh, in the parable, man has a sheep, and then in the second part, he has a woman with the coin. Have you noticed Luke always likes to talk about the women? It's one of those uh, really cool things. He mentions that who paid for the Jesus movement? The rich women. And whenever you go through Acts, whenever we're founding new communities, who's involved? He always says there were many prominent rich women. Okay, this is actually how you're supposed to do missionary life, guys. Find yourself some rich women. Is that any of you? I'm a poor missionary. So here we have a woman. It's very Luke. And she has her coins. These could be a dowry. It could be this is if it is her dowry, then this is what her father has given her. This is what makes her valuable in his eyes. This is very, very important to her. It's possible. If she loses a coin, she will bring light. Her house will not normally have this, but she will spend some energy. She will take oil, which is precious, and she will light a lamp. And she will earnestly sweep that house. She will search carefully for this coin until she finds it. Isn't that beautiful? is a very comforting thought, especially for Jewish believers, new Jewish believers in this land who often are the only members of their family to come to faith. And they'll ask, what happens to my family now? I believe, but what about my parents? What happens to them? And you can say, you know, our Father in heaven loves them even more than you do. And he's going to search for them diligently. He's going to look for them earnestly. He's going to find our children if they've wandered away with all of his heart and all of his resources. That is a very nice, comforting thought, yes? God uh, in Search of Man is a very famous book written by Rabbi Abraham Heschel. It describes uh, the heart of God that it's often not man who looks for the divine, although he should. God begins the search. When God made heaven and earth and he started creation, he made things in, in couples and they were always in a relationship. Heaven and earth, males and females, day and night, good and evil. It's very hard to understand one without the other. And, and God made heaven. Where was God before he made heaven? I have no clue. But I'll tell you, he didn't make heaven and go, oh, thank God, now I've got somewhere to sit. Man, I really should have done this before. <laughs> First thing he does when he makes heaven is leave it. Where does he go? Comes to earth. To do what? Talk to Adam. He says, Adam, every afternoon in the cool of the evening, I'm coming to talk with you. I want to hear how your day was. I already know how your day was. I'm God. But I want to hear your voice tell me about it. I want to hear your experiences. I want you to be a part of looking after creation with me. I want you to tend this garden and make it grow. I want you to help me rule and reign. And that same thought Is here with us, that God has sought us out and He has uh, brought us into this beautiful family diligently, earnestly, deliberately, compassionately. And we realize with these parables that God has compassion on the lost. And if that is the heart of God, we have to ask ourselves do we have compassion for the lost? If not, why not? God rejoices whenever the, the lost are found. And the New Testament doesn't just bring that to light. The prophets do. Isaiah 62 says God rejoices. We read a psalm. God rejoices. Zephaniah says in chapter 317, The Lord your God will be in your midst. Ooh, that's nice. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We are not the only ones who sing. Isn't that a nice thought? God also rejoices over us in song to the delight of heaven. And then each of these parables call the sinner to repentance. They can't stay in sin. Can't We cannot. It's not healthy for us. It's not good for us. God does not want it. He doesn't like sin either. So he urges us to repent. And repentance is such a big deal in, uh, in, in Jewish literature. First words of Jesus out of the desert, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is here. Last words of Jesus in Revelation: "Repent, for I am coming soon." Jewish people believe that uh, repentance was even made before the creation of the world, and they get that from Psalm ninety, verse twenty-three. If anybody wanted to look for it, where it talks about this before creation, God was asking us to teshuvah, to repent, to return. So, to finish very briefly. Brothers and sisters, we are challenged today by the message of the Messiah as he teaches through the parables. Do we have the same compassion as the Father for the lost? If not, why not? Because the lost must also become precious to us. So brothers and sisters, may the Holy Spirit fill you with a passion to seek and save the lost.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching,